Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the Corgi car of the Jaguar XJS from The Return of the Saint had a huge Saint logo on the bonnet just to help him be that bit more undercover. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is broadcaster Samira Ahmed. Samira, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I am still presenting Front Row on Radio 4. I have a podcast called How I Found My Voice, which is everywhere you get podcasts, and it won the Broadcasting Press Guild Audio Presenter of the Year Award in 2020. And I'm working on other secret interesting things, which I can't say anything about until they're, they're definitely happening, but... Yeah, I'm squirreling away on all kinds of weird things. <laughs> well, one thing we can talk about is your victory on Celebrity Mastermind last year, where your chosen special subject directly ties in to your first choice. Okay, that's the second theme tune from Space 1999, the one that nobody remembers, but this is something that probably absolutely nobody even who remembers that music remembers. Samira, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the Selfridges department store walkthrough experience of Space 1999, which was actually twinned with Planet of the Apes, the TV show, which was, I think... 1975 and it was actually as the series was launching so bizarrely before people had had a chance to see it and my parents well my mother it's always my mother who had to do it my mother took me and my siblings to see it and my brother wanted this Planet of the Apes thing but I we walked through all these sets from Space 1999 which were basically (laughs) desktops desktop computer screens TV monitors built into the walls that were black and white and lots of blinking exciting lights on desks that sounds absolutely fantastic Fantastic. I have actually found there are some photos online and somebody has identified that the props actually came from another Jerry Anderson show, which is Into Infinity, which is a pilot that I don't think had been broadcast in the UK at that point. It never went to a series, but obviously because I assume they were still making Space 1999 at that point, probably doing reshoots if it had just about started on TV. But yeah, it was all the big swindle. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think think, to be fair, I mean, Brian Johnson, the special effects kind of model maker of Space 1999, who went on to win Oscars for things like Aliens and Empire Strikes Back, he had worked on Beyond Infinity. And Paul J. Franklin, who's the Oscar winning special effects designer, I remember talking to him for my podcast about it. And Beyond Infinity, I think, did have, you know, interesting model work. I think it was supposed to be more of a science factual series than sort of speculative fiction. So to be fair, I think, you know, like with a lot of Jerry Anderson, they ended up, one thing led to another like UFO led to space 1999 and and it, you know it's so I can't tell you how much that walkthrough experience meant to me my brother wanted to get his photo taken with you know a couple of actors in monkey masks which we still have <laughs> of him with someone playing the gorilla general and someone dressed as uh, is it Cornelius the one that Roddy McDowell played but I I just wanted I just I went for the, this walkthrough and there was something about this world it was very late 60s early 70s science fiction which was sleek plastic grey uncluttered environments and blinking screens and beautifully clicking 
tapping keyboards. And that really appealed to me. And that was all my world building, all my playing with science fiction. And Space 1999 was the one show that I would play at, you know, with my cousins and my, my sister and would, you know, make our own version of, of Moonbase Alpha. So it, it was really influential on me. Yeah, the walkthrough was quite a big thing at that point, which is weird when you think about how Secret Cinema has kind of revived that on a much bigger scale. But it's something that fell from favour for a long time. But the one that I always remember was when Liverpool had the International Garden Festival in 1984. There was a, I think it was 60 years of children's BBC exhibition, which was a big tent that you walked through where it had all kinds of, you know, puppets you'd never heard of in display cases, photographs of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn on the wall. But it had two massive tableaus in it. One was a Doctor Who one, which there are photos of online, with a kind of very battle-damaged set of Daleks and a wrong TARDIS and a canine, which I'm convinced it was missing half of it. I've yet to see evidence of that. But there's also a Magic Roundabout one, which had life-size, I mean human-sized representations of all the characters, with a moving roundabout in the middle, which is terrifying when you look back to it. And also later, the Paul, who's one of the kids that nobody knows the name of on the roundabout, fell over. And that was even more frightening because they never righted it. He was just lying slumped on the horse going round. I was about, Tim, I was about, do you know what? We were in some kind of ESP, 70s communication, Tim, because I was struggling to say to you, do you know about Paul? Because I have got, I've got the Magic Roundabout cookbook. I, I nearly brought it up. I got the copy downstairs because I was trying to dig up my Nanette Newman one. And I was given this in 1975. So it gets the same year as the walkthrough experience that I did. And there are all these recipes which are, you know, assigned to different characters. And there's Basil and Paul. I thought, who's Paul? You know, he's like the kind of the fifth beetle in this magic roundabout world where I don't know. He was like another bloke who hung out with Basil. And there are recipes ascribed to each of them. But actually, that was the first cookbook I was ever given. I was given it for my, I presume, seventh birthday. I think it was actually published in 73 and I would have been given it something like 74 or 75. And I can't tell you, not only have I cooked a lot of recipes from it, but I still make a recipe that dates back to the Magic Roundabout cookbook, which is my Angel Delight surprise. And I used to make it at university and it was interspersed layers of two different flavours of Angel Delight with sliced banana and the big cook's tip from, uh, is it, what's the name of the farmer guy? Mr. McHenry. Mr. McHenry. You sprinkle some cinnamon on it and a little squeeze of lemon juice to stop the banana slices turning brown. That is fantastic. But yes, I did know about Paul and Basil and Rosalie, who was a blonde girl, because I remember, you know, they were in the opening titles. They were occasionally in episodes, apparently the black and white ones in the 60s are in it all the time. But, you know, how do you get to see them? Oh, but I yeah, see. it's that is a frequent argument argument I've had with people the other three children had names oh I knew them re- I know them really well and I know what their favourite dishes are because I've got the cookbook Rosalie has a bit of a sweet tooth does it have Penelope the spider doing a recipe in it no no Brian does but that's the only non-human that has a recipe he does melting moments not even Dougal gets a sugar cube based recipe actually no sorry, sorry, Dougal has loads of recipes yeah there's a lot of recipes for Dougal Dougal is sort of he, he kind of he had special status didn't he he was like more important than the humans God, that's brought back such fond memories. But the walkthrough thing, well, the other thing that went with the walkthrough, and there's still a version of it that survives in kind of Disney on ice, is you would have these shows where you'd have people in costumes. They obviously weren't the real thing. But as a child in the mid-70s, I was prepared to accept that kind of was. It's a bit like you accept it is Santa in that grotto. And I remember being taken, I had a friend who lived in Luton, and her mum took us to the Dunstable, whatever the, you know, recreation centre was, to see a, a kind of Super Friends show. So it was Batman, Batgirl and someone else from the DC world running around on stage to music. 
It was very exciting, but you know, really <laughs> excited. I can imagine it's exciting though, because the weird thing about Space 1999 for me is for a show that really wasn't that kind of merchandisable in a lot of ways. It's almost like it was an afterthought, like they thought, oh, we better design some really good spaceships so we can sell toys of them. I mean, if you look at the later Jerry Anderson ones, the amount of toys connected with them goes down and down incrementally. You know, Joe 90, they do Joe's Jet Car, which is fair mm. enough, but they also do Sam Louver's car. I don't know who wanted that. The Secret Service is just that Stanley Ubwin driving Gabriel the vintage car that's it and then UFO obviously there's a bit of resurgence Space 1999 there's all kinds of things that are really hard to get hold of now which I remember having things like I had an Airfix kit of the Hawk which is the smaller version of the Eagles there's obviously the Dinky Eagle toys which are everywhere at one point I've still got mine what I've also still got is my Space 1999 Viewmaster reels I adored them I didn't adore the Waltons one so much which I also got but Space 1999, yes, they were terrific. Tell me what was on the Viewmaster reels. Or Do they have a couple of different stories, different episodes? Though? It was three reels of one episode. It was the, what's the one with Joan Collins in? Oh, I should know this because it was I should know it as well. Topic. But it's the one where they find a spaceship where basically there's an elite Eloy who are eating the lower orders who live at the other end of the ship who are like degenerated into primitive cave people. It's got a title like something like the Archons, but it's not the Archons. So it wasn't... It it wasn't just like a tour of Space 1999, like, you know, here's inside the medical bay and here's Dr. Russell at work or here's main mission or anything like that. It was actually sort of taking you through a plot. Oh, yes, yeah. They did that with a lot of things, like with the Doctor Who ones as well. It was, I think they just invited a photographer on set and said, take some of those stereoscopic photos while we're, I must have been during rehearsals, I think. It was actually based on an episode and I loved it. I just, it's weird to say that Viewmaster was one of the only ways of reliving things in those days, but it really was. You know, and it's funny, I had a lot of them from, actually from America, we went, my very lucky, my father took us to the States in 1976 for the first time, which is bicentennial year, so I have incredible memories, in fact I've just dug out some of the comics I bought, special bicentennial issues of things like kind of Superman and Wonder Woman, and we brought back all these, and a lot of the photographs in them had actually been taken in the 50s or 60s, so you were already looking into a time machine and you were looking into the past, but because they had a 3D quality to them, it was the closest you had to sort of them as a lived experience. And in you know places like Disney World and Disneyland, it was the only way to sort of have a memory of those some of those rides, like parts of the Caribbean, which it would take you around and you know they'd have little lines of script from them and I can't imagine how anyone would put up with something like that now <laughs> I think home video cameras you know something beyond the cine camera was really what started to change that when people could bring home proper moving images from their holidays I mean I was trying to think of more that I had but the only one I can think of is and this is going to draw complete blanks there was in the late 70s there's a brief set of public information films with a kangaroo called Dusty who oh, yeah, advertised picking up lit and I have Viewmaster reels of him basically having adventures telling rats to pick up litter and that was it but there were thousands of these things based on all kinds of properties I mean I imagine there was a Star Wars one there was definitely Doctor Who there were probably other Jerry Anderson ones as I say I had the Waltons not the one with the poltergeist sadly it was one of the many episodes where Grandma's old beau had invited her to a dance do you know again it's sort of weird to think this is you know the 1970s and 80s and certainly the 70s and this form 
form of entertainment. I mean, it's like a spectroscope. It's Victorian. So here we are sort of in the space age and we're still using this kind of Victorian children's toy. And yet they didn't really go for Space 1999 toys, did they? Apart from the base on the spaceship, because you couldn't get a comlock or anything, could you? Did you have any other Space 1999 memorabilia at the time? It's a very sore, sore memory. It's a kind of very poignant memory is there were these figures, you know, a bit like they were the Star Wars figurines. There were, you could get models of, you know, different characters and I always wanted them and they had them with somebody like the Christopher Lee character, you know, because there were some very spooky episodes which had these remarkable actors and people like, you know, this, the Christopher Lee character was turned into a little model and we had this conversation last time, do you remember? Uh, I was on about there was a bargain bin which still had some of these figures into the late 1980s at Nerdon and Peacock, the wholesaler and I don't know why I didn't buy them then even. They were covered in dust and they still had the original sticker price on them because of nothing else I could sell them in mint in box. I never asked for them but I loved that show so much. But I know since doing it as my specialist subject you can imagine a lot of people have got in touch from around the world and there were novelizations. there were huge numbers of models and one of the big things you may know that I think the last Star Wars film you know the episode 9 one someone who worked on the building of the Millennium Falcon they tweeted a photograph of how they had put their own personal toy of one of the eagles underneath so it's actually there's a thing that special effects people do model workers do they put their own models of their own beloved toys and they attach them to the big thing they've made for a film so although you don't get to see it on screen you know it was physically there a lot of people who've gone on to work in science fiction special effects in Hollywood grew up obsessed with Space 1999 whether they were some I mean a lot of them would still be old enough to remember it on original transmission because they'd be in there you know about 50 now and I don't know how far younger ones are discovering it but certainly the whole generation who basically have run special effects in Hollywood are all Space 1999 fans. I mean, as say Paul Franklin, who won Oscars for Inception and Interstellar. I mean, he was obsessed with that show. Well, I have actually just noticed from the corner of my eye, I didn't even realise I had this on my bookshelf. A hardback in a dust jacket, Space 1999, Mind Breaks of Space by Michael Butterworth, which I've opened it to see. It was withdrawn from my local library. Got a solder scene stamp on it. 20 pence I paid for this at some point. I have no idea when that was. Well, it's funny. I'm just looking next to my desk. I have two giant volumes, one of which says Space 1999, Year 2. Michael Butterworth and all the the novelizations. Basically, someone got in touch with me and wanted to send me them because they they they've produced them. Powers Media it is have, have produced them as these big hardback volumes, which is all the collected novelizations. So you can recreate all the lost stories that you didn't have. I have to confess, I haven't read them yet, but there is a lot of fandom. I also got emails from fans in Italy. So you may know Series 1 was a co-production with yes, um, Rayuno. Yeah. So there were Italian actors in it, which added added to the kind of, you know, slightly exotic feel of it, that it was genuinely international. You had all these people who quite heavily accented, and as it turned out, some of them were quite heavily dubbed <laughs> because their English wasn't that great but it just had that kind of weird look because of the casting and that's why they some of them had Italian names and things so yeah there's that that whole world and, and I've had fans get in touch who've from Italy who adored that show and have kept in touch and followed the fates of all the actors and everyone involved so I think we sometimes forget although it was made in the UK there's a real love of it in Italy in particular didn't the Italian version of it have a crazy theme tune I don't know I can't confess I haven't watched I haven't watched the Italian version of it 
So, harking back to the intro, you've never heard the Italian intro song of the Return of the Saint, then? No. It's a gentleman singing about how he's going to watch the Return of the Saint when it's on. Not when it's not on. When it's on, he's going to sit right down and watch it. That is the whole theme song for the Return of the Saint. I mean, what is... It's sung in English as well. I don't understand what was going on. There is this phenomenon. Someone was tweeting a link to this song from the 60s, which had a remarkable video shot with mirrors. And it was a nonsense song by a French artist, but sung entirely in English, and it made no sense, but it was all real English words. So maybe there's an element of that, which we don't understand because we know our language is dominant. The only example I can think of is, um, if you think about the, the single Big in Japan by Alphaville, German band, 1984. Mm. And I remember I was obsessed with that single. I absolutely loved it. And I was looking at the lyrics today, weirdly. And it's incredibly sophisticated, but it makes no sense. Except it does. I mean, like, you know, you can say it out loud and all the words sort of work, but you don't really, you can tell it's, it's kind of almost like a song that's been put together by an algorithm. So there's obviously a phenomenon of that, isn't there, with a international television singing in English? There certainly is. And I just, before we move on to your next choice, I just want to say that I was asked the other day what I would choose as my specialist subject if I was on Mastermind. I said I couldn't decide between The Piper at the Gates of Dawn and Camberwick Green. Now, if that ever happens, given all the stuff you've been sent, Nobody send me the clown from Camberwick Green. I am fine for that. Yeah, no, I can't see people have sent me like authentic things. I did I did borrow the Space 1999 costume that I wore to take part. But I've, I'll give you, if you do do Camberwick Green, there's an interesting little bit of trivia, which is, you know, is it Freddie Phillips who did the music? You know that he performed on the soundtrack to Peeping Tom? Peeping Tom, yes. Yeah, that is a mind-blowing yeah, so, fact. So when, I'm trying to think if it was after Gordon Murray died. I found out that Freddie Phillips' son, you know, sells CDs of the music. They're beautiful, they're instrumental versions. And I wrote to him and I asked, you know, I bought, I bought several copies. And I also, I said, can I ask, is it true that your dad performed on the soundtrack to Peeping Tom? And he went, yes, it's very, you know, and, and he sort of expressed just a sort of sense of like it's not something they, they used to talk about like his father was obviously yeah. quite appalled to discover what sort of film it was although obviously we now know it's a classic and also Freddie Phillips son has this beautiful handwriting if I may say so well I'm wondering how much beautiful handwriting if any there is in your next choice where I couldn't find a clip to really represent this so here's something similar for a couple of decades later <laughs> That's the Got A Lot Of Bottle early 80s milk marketing board campaign, complete with the Mary Whitehouse lookalike saying, well, in opportune moments. But Samira, this is something from much, much earlier, yeah, isn't so it? Yeah, I, so I have to say, even I can't remember this because my mother, when I was about 10 or 11, gave me a booklet called Good Looks Ahead, which had a picture of a Julie Christie lookalike swinging her handbag on the cover. And it was this book for young women to kind of tell you about how to take care of yourself. So it was sort of a promotional material in the guise of, you know, a sort of 
almost like a little woman's booklet magazine. And it's got just this lovely 60s layout. So it sort of says, do you want to look better, feel better, learn to relax, sleep better, enjoy life, then read on. And it's all about kind of glamour and how to eat well and, you know, hygiene and um, washing your clothes and things. And basically, it's not until you look on the back cover that it's actually published by the National Dairy Council. And it was this obviously designed to get women to drink more milk. I mean, basically the answer to everything <laughs> is drink more milk. And I was, because I'd never been given anything like this before. And, it, you know, it was my mother gave it to me at just that right time because people forget it's not when you're a teenager, even as long ago as, you know, the 1970s and 80s, girls start growing up and kind of becoming teenagers around 10, really. And, and they're thinking that way. So I read this booklet kind of cover to cover repeatedly. And I, you know, used to make little notes about it. And I had little ideas of, of meals. And, and I just remember the big thing it said was you know because it had this whole thing of that you're a busy career girl this was the 60s you'd be going off to your exciting work as a as a clerk or something I don't know and it said that even if you don't have time to eat breakfast have a glass of milk and there's a kind of logic to it. And then you realise, oh, it's because it's the marketing board. It's true. And anyway, I still have it. Um, I'm just trying to think of this. There was some, some little great moments about it. But here we go. I like this. The way you walk, even if you don't feel particularly gay, pretending that you do often helps a lot. Pull in your tummy, lift your chest and relax your shoulders. Hold your head high and walk like a queen. What's that got to do with milk? It's about relaxing. So the, there's sections on nutrition, but there's also a section kind of relaxing and taking care of yourself. And there's lovely, it's kind of combination of sort of lovely drawn sort of 60s illustrations of sort of this girl working out and playing tennis and going swimming with her kind of fluffy hat. There's a great thing on how to develop your personality. And she's she's sitting in a lovely roll neck jumper by her dance set record play with her LP. Can you see what LPs they are? Oh, I'm trying to see. They actually look a bit, they're not, they're not the Beatles or anything that cool. They look a bit <laughs> sort of Matt Monroe. But there's a whole thing about, you know, experience develops your personality and wise girls soon realise that there's a lot to learn. And it's sort of a bit it's all very euphemistic. So it's not quite telling you, you know, whether you should or shouldn't be sleeping with anyone. But I love the idea of that, you know, you need to think about your personality and keep a check on your habits and, you know, watch your watch your personal habits and learn to relax both physically and mentally. And then it suggests playing with the crowd. It's actually got a weird 50s feel to it. But you know how there's been a bit of a vogue? I mean, you may not know, there's been a bit of a vogue of young girls rediscovering the kind of old advice manuals that were sold to their grandmothers and actually adapting them, you know, some of the kind of old exercises and things. And there's an element of that. It was just really lovely to sort of have a book which told you that you're going to grow up to be a woman and you need to take care of yourself. As an active girl, you can't keep going for long on tea and toast for breakfast and a bun and coffee for lunch, even if she does eat a respectable meal in the evening. So it's, it's all a bit sort of random and, but, you know, a glass of milk is always the right answer. <laughs> oh, no, but here's a bit. Look, milk is not fattening. In fact, it is used in most scientific slimming diets. There's a whole section on beware of old wives' tales with a picture of two old biddies. <laughs> Milk is not constipating, it says. So, yeah, just important things like that. You need to know. Well, to be honest with you, when you first mentioned this, I was worried that it was going to be incredibly patronising, but it sounds like it may not be. I mean, I don't think it's 100% probably very enlightened, but it sounds much more positive than I was expecting, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, it talks about the importance of eating breakfast, of resting, getting enough sleep. But, you know, it keeps using the word glamour, which is what I love. And, it, you know, and it goes the whole little thing on food groups, you know, eating plenty of, actually, look, eat wisely every day. So they got they got the four main food groups. Guess what the first food group is? Milk. How did you guess? Yeah. And then they've got pictures of milk, butter, cheese and cream. And then the second group is 
fruit, vegetables and fruits, then um, meat, fish, poultry, eggs and cheese, and then finally bread, cereals and sugar. And apart from, I know, putting milk at the top, actually, that's the right order, isn't it? Vegetables and fruits, and then meat, fish and proteins, and carbohydrates right at the bottom. Well, I'm quite concerned that we're actually fighting a losing battle in the 60s, because either side of it, you've got in the late 50s, you've got, I don't know if they really, really took hold over here the same way they did in America, but you know, you've got the whole thing of milk bars associated with Teddy Boys and rock and roll and degenerates and so on. And then in the early 70s, you've got Alex and his droogs in Clockwork Orange going for their Maloco every evening before a night rampaging on the town. And, you know, in the middle of this, you've got the milk marketing, well, sorry, the dairy marketing board saying, no, milk's quite good, it's wholesome, honestly. Yeah, and you know, I'm just looking at the whole section of personal hygiene and it's all this stuff about how, you know, there are all kinds of old wives' tales about menstruation and it uses the M word and it says, you know, don't think that there's anything unnatural about it. It's perfectly natural function. Because actually there was this myth and I can remember my mother was still a bit nervous about it, which is, you know, you weren't supposed to wash your hair when you had your period on. And this says, you know, this tells you it's absolutely not true. And it's far from being unwise to have a bath at that time. It's more essential than ever, you know. And then it talks about the importance of going to the lavatory regularly, you know, and keeping to your regular habits, habits in capital letters, you know, and the importance of you can't hope to have a clear complexion and be bright and gay if you are a victim of constipation. I just, you know, it's really, I mean, I, I don't think there's, there's much in it. Apart, you could argue from the <laughs> emphasis on milk as essential to life. That isn't 100% healthy advice today. It's called good looks ahead. You know, so it, it's, it's posited through this idea of looks rather than self-empowerment. But actually, when you read it, it is all about self-empowerment. Well, not surprised because they did used to aggressively market food groups, you know, under a kind of generic banner in those days. I don't know if it really happens now, but the things that stick in my mind are things like there was an advert just for butter in the 80s that had an old man rolling his cap along his arms oh. to the delight of his family. I don't know what that had to do with oh, butter. Oh, I know why they would have had to advertise it, though. Because there was that whole obsession about margarine, wasn't there? And we had a butter mountain. And it's true. I mean, my mother goes on and she never, ever bought margarine. She said it's, you know, it's unhealthy and it's full of chemicals. And she felt so vindicated. It took about 30 years till all the scientists finally agreed. But she's very, very proud of that. But there were other ones like there was the meat marketing board did that what no meat in the mid 80s with I think it was a Captain Sensible song with people going, what, no mate, yeah. what, no mate, there's nothing here I want to eat. There was a fish one to the tune of Shout by Lulu. They had lots of people shouting for fish and at the end the sea all clapping. Tea, the best drink of the day and things like that. I think subliminally they worked because now that you mention them, I can, I have this vague sense of them all, even though I can't quite recall them in detail. Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, the, you know, the most fascinating thing about the past is we didn't have an obesity problem until relatively recently. And, you know, people still haven't, there are all kinds of theories about why, but actually if you look at intake, you know, and calories and things, there's hardly been any difference. So they think a big factor is, you know, um, lack of activity, physical activity. And I also have a whole theory about portion size. Like if you have to try and cook from a cookbook from the 70s, portion size is really tiny. Yeah, I'm so glad I kept it. I think I even let my daughter have a look at it, but I didn't let her have it for too long because I knew she'd probably, you know, like when they don't take care of things the way that I do. So I took it back quite quickly. The design on things like that from that era is always amazing, though. I find it's like people went above and beyond the call of duty, possibly because they they had less to do, less to be getting on with. But designers really made their mark in those days on even things like mundane albums. I mean, at the moment, I'm coming towards the end of the long-awaited sequel to my book about the BBC Records and Tape singles dealing with the albums. Yeah. The early albums 
After they dropped the generic sleeves early on, are astonishing the work that went into creating those covers. Particularly when it wasn't related to a particular program and they had to take a photograph of something like Peter Usnov's face embossed on a whiskey decanter really? and that sort of thing. Well, I think you've hit on something. I mean, I think it might have been partly to do with all these amazing new graduates coming out of all the art colleges and art schools and a simultaneous development of new technology around graphics and fonts. Because, you know, there are all these amazing designers like, you know, Robert Brownjohn, who was an advertising copywriter from the States who came to London in the I think, very early 60s and designed not just loads of Penguin book covers, but came up with, you know, the very famous From Russia with Love and Goldfinger title sequence with the lettering projected over a woman's body. So this is the age of that. I mean, I've done a couple of films about some of the graphic artists. There was him and then, oh, what is his name? He wrote this amazing book about the history of art. And he worked at the same advertising agency as Robert Brownjohn. They were really good friends. Alan, something his name is. And I remember interviewing him about Robert Brownjohn. They just did these incredible graphics. And I think that was the atmosphere. If you think about all those old, if you ever look at old pelicans and things that come up in secondhand bookshops, you know, they're very playful. They combine photography with interesting layouts and kind of cutouts and all those things. And then you think about artists like Gerald Scar, and you know Fluck and Law who went on to do Spitting Image you, you know a lot of their work was 3D they would make puppetry that was just used in a 2D format for magazine covers and magazine layouts for their things like the Sunday Times so huge amounts of creativity going into that well the one artist from that era that I think doesn't get any not doesn't even not get enough recognition doesn't get any at all I'm hoping you will recognise this name Hilary Hayton did she do a lot of children's illustrations she did yeah. She also designed the Play School House. She designed Crystal Tips and Alistair. All kinds of things like that. All kinds of comic strips. And I've seen yes. photos of her in the 60s. She designed their own glasses, which were astonishing works of art. And yet, you know, you think how many people saw her work, the influence she had, and she's not really remembered at all. I find that incredibly sad. Her work is so distinctive. It's sort of, often it's kind of hair on women that's like big purple clouds. It's something a bit psychedelic. But yes, you'd probably recognize it from children's illustrations and crystal tips and alistair i didn't watch it particularly but i know exactly the look of those characters and it's funny because you know one of the things we're going to talk about there's a male illustrator who did a very similar style who i was going to bring up alan cracknell who i think is actually about the same generation hillary seems to have been she's on a website called putney artists and i wonder if that's because she was at putney school of art because the artist i'm thinking of was from wimbledon and i think it was it's wimbledon and putney were really famous for the art school yeah no people like i don't know if it was mick jagger but you know, some really interesting pop stars went to the Wimbledon School of Art. I mean, it was one of the big art colleges. You know, they've all a lot of them have gone or they've been absorbed into, you know, the University of Arts London. But, you know, Goldsmiths College, Wimbledon School of Art, St. Martin's, they were all really, I mean, just the names they put out. And it just disseminated out everywhere in the 60s as well. I mean, you know, it was to do with things like, obviously, people wanted more advanced album covers and things like BBC Two did much more features on pop art and so on than maybe being done previously. I think it then filtered from there into things like supermarkets labels and so on. It was a real art revolution in the UK in the 60s that doesn't get to, I mean even just mentioning Hilary Hayton, just illustrations in Radio Times were yeah. incredibly good for something that was going to be not even read used for a week and then thrown away Can I tell you some of the notable alumni from the Wimbledon College of Arts? Pauline Boaty, you know the pop artist who was kind of, she's a subject of Ali Smith's Autumn, you know the first of that sequence of books, Raymond Briggs Oh Sarah Greenwood, the production designer for Beauty and the Beatles, that's much more recent. Do yeah, no, I've definitely done some 
pop music stuff where you've just seen a lot of 60s musicians had that art. I mean, obviously it's a different example, but John Lennon is a famous example of the art school alumni. Well, and tying it back to my mastermind choices, Sid Barrett, of course, from yes. Pink Floyd. Well, where was he at art school? I thought I was thinking of him. I thought he must, he must, I don't, I don't know why I thought he might have gone to Wimbledon, but Cambridge Art College before studying at Camberwell, that's the one I'm thinking of. That's the one where the pop stars went. But I mean, he just, for the short career he had, the little creative time in the public eye, he kind of, until it all went wrong for him, really embodied that sort of spirit of the, it's sort of lost without the, you know, the element of them playing live in the 60s and the visual elements, but it was as though he saw no boundaries between art and his music. Yeah, well, I think a lot of them didn't. I mean, I'm just looking, you know, the generational range, John Mayle, Charlie Watts, John Lennon, Keith Richards, Jimmy Page, John Cale, Viv Stanshall, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Ray Davis went to Haunty College of Art, Sid Barrett, Brian Ferry, Adamant, Joe Strummer, Freddie Mercury, Ealing College of Art, Ian Drury, Mark Armand, Sade, Jarvis Cocker, Graham Coxon, PJ Harvey, MIA. And of course, MIA, she made these amazing videos for her art at university. Well, that's it. All of those people you mentioned, they're all people who, at some point, were very successful at sneaking avant-garde ideas mm. really into very mainstream, very commercial works. Mm. Particularly Graham Coxon. When Blur were really, really in their kind of career pomp, his guitar solos are very odd for top 10 singles. But you don't notice because, you know, it's girls and boys. It's a happy, clappy disco song and he's making a din yeah, in the middle Yeah, you're quite right. It. God, that's right. Which one is it where it sounds like a seagull hitting an electric fence? Oh, that's Tracy Jacks on Park Life. <laughs> I will listen to that with a new sense yeah. of specificness about what the sounds I'm hearing. Okay, well, I'm wondering if we'll get any specific sounds out of your next choice, which is, I'll admit, something I don't remember at all, but it sounds actually quite interesting. <laughs> There's a place I know where we can go with such a lot to see. It's the farm food, the farm food factory. You know, I'm so pleased that you could come and join us here at the Fun Food Factory because we are going to have the most terrific time. We really are. We're going to have lots of fun and we're going to make something that is mm, absolutely delicious. Now, I have two friends here with me today because they've been going around my factory, looking around, seeing what's going on. And that's uh, David here Hello. and Diane. Hello. Now, have you both had a nice time? Yes, thank you yes. very much. And did you, did you notice anything about the factory, anything that's a bit different, perhaps? Yeah, you don't use no uh, preservatives or colour in the food. You're absolutely right. OK, that was a bit of dialogue from the Fun Food Factory. Samira, what was the Fun Food Factory? So, um, I'm interested that you don't know anything about this. This is a bit like the Saturday banana to me. It was a quite a big thing <laughs> at the weekend. It was an LWT children's show, I think something like nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. And it was presented by Nanette Newman, you know, who was obviously known as an actor. And not, I think, at all for being a cook. 
cookbook and there was a cookbook that went with it which we still have in my family I don't know if my sister's got the copyright now or I do and I, I again it's one of those books I there's still a recipe from it that I cook although my children argue with me about spinach but what's interesting is two things one is she makes a big thing in the series about there's nothing out of tins there's no calories there's no preservatives everything is natural and it's cooking from scratch so it's everything from I mean there are cakes and things in it but it's really interesting stuff like chicken Maryland which is kind of cooked with oranges you know and homemade what do you call it they eat it a lot in America meatloaf but she calls it beefcake and she puts in a layer of cooked vegetables so there'll be cooked spinach or a layer of cooked carrot in the middle the illustrations it was a bit like you know the artist you mentioned there was this another artist he's called Alan Cracknell he's still alive he's born in the 30s and he had a lovely style he did a lot of children's cookbooks he did posters and and children's tv and things and he did all the illustrations of the book which they then used to build the props of the set so it's all the vi- vitamins and and minerals are all turned into little cartoon characters so each recipe would have a little picture of iron kind of you know pumping weights or sprightly niacin or something you know it wears its educational value sort of openly but I thought it was done really well and they built this quite big set which is very strange and there's a big set so completely fake in a studio of a bridge over a fake river and a kind of fake garden and she she arrives like a sort of you know like Rita Tushingham in Dr Zhivago she's a factory <laughs> worker with her hair in a scarf and a, a sort of workman like overall and she she's a group of children waiting on the side of this thing and she picks a couple of them up and they march off into a factory and it's again a fake factory but it's like the giant wall of a factory building and you open the door and you come in and suddenly you're in what in the end is just a kitchen so it sort of plays the idea of it sort of being I don't know maybe it's a bit like science fiction that children want to be taken into this world where you're a grown up so you're going into a factory perhaps everything inside it is natural so the episode which I found on YouTube which is from I think January 1977 the, the series was sort of 76 to 77 they're making wholemeal bread from scratch and learning how to knead bread and at the end of the thing she'd always have two real children helping her make everything at the end of it there's a little you know kitchen table and there's always a celebrity and it was Dickie Davis who wow. <laughs> comes to meet them and you know eats their sliced bread and spreads it with butter and jam and I mean I just remember really loving the recipes and being struck by how exotic it was there was a recipe for gazpacho you know that's that's the soup recipe that's the first recipe in the book how to make your own chilled gazpacho. And she says, you know, I know it sounded a bit odd to have a chilled soup, but this is amazing and really refreshing. It's just terrific. And I must have told you my Nanette Newman story because I, I didn't exactly meet her, but when Richard Attenborough had a film season at the British Film Institute, God, it must have been nearly 20 years ago, he famously came to every screening and they were screening one of the films that Brian Forbes had directed, which was a Seance on a Tuesday Afternoon. And they both came with their wives. So, you know, Richard Attenborough, Brian Forbes, Nanette Newman, and I can't remember who Richard Attenborough's wife was and all four of them were sitting together in a row when Richard Attenborough got up to introduce the film he talked about how Brian Forbes was the best friend he'd ever had and they were still best friends and how they and their wives all got together all the time and just they were this lovely you know this the, these two couples who were just the best of friends so she just seems she seems to be an amazingly lovely woman who was teaching us about good nutrition in 1976 when McDonald's was just about to spread its evil across the land well I'm just wondering if Dickie Davis just happened to be I mean World of Sport was LWT, wasn't it? It must have yeah, been. Yeah, but and, I mean, it would have been must have just been passing and they said, quick, come in and be a guest on this. Yeah, well, if you know, have you ever been to the old LWT studios? You know that LWT tower that used to be on the South Bank? It only got demolished, I think, two years ago. So the thing about that building, and I have done things like, have I got news for you? It used to be recorded there. Lorraine and, you know, Good Morning Britain always came from there. It's an incredibly narrow building with, you know, it's two big studios on the ground floor. So I guess if you were in there, you weren't far from 
the only other thing that was being recorded. So I wonder if they recorded it on a Saturday, you know, and they just got him on, you know, after he'd finished. I don't know. I love the idea that he might have walked straight from there into the world of sports studio because that's how television worked for me when I was really young. <laughs> I imagined people wandering between programmes. I think I, for some reason, I think I had an obsession with I thought the Mastermind Studio was used for making, I can't remember what, but a puppet programme that had a black background. I always pictured Magnus Magnuson kicking, you know, no, Ragtime had a white background, didn't it? But whatever had a black background, Magnus Magnuson kicking the props out of the way (laughs) impatiently when he strode on. But I remember when Andrew Collins and Stuart McConey used to do the music club on Radio 1, that once when they did that, they were guest hosting Mark Radcliffe's show immediately after it. And they did a bit of business at the end where they said, hey, Andrew, I'm doing Mark Radcliffe's show. Do you fancy coming with me? Oh, yeah. And they did a bit of walking along the corridor business, and I loved that. Well, nowadays, of course, everyone sort of hot desks in the same studio because we have fewer studios. But I can kind of put some reality to your, you know, your kind of childhood imagination of it because, what have been, 95, there was a big Star Trek convention in London at the Albert Hall, and me and the other big Star Trek fan at BBC News, oh, let's do a load of reports. And Patrick Stewart was on Blue Peter, and we got an agreement that he would come and do an interview for news straight after. So I had the surreal experience of, you know, going down onto the Blue Peter set where I think they were, I don't know if it was live even, and we had to walk around the back through the black curtain and sort of escort Patrick Stewart off the set as soon as he'd finished his thing and then take him, you know, up to, you know, different parts of TV centre. And there was a, literally a cupboard that was used as a mini studio because it had a, a sort of green screen type curtain. And we sat him in there. And in fact, I've, I've it's probably up on YouTube somewhere, but I've got the report. And you had that sense of, you know, you walked through people's other worlds and sets. Mm-hmm. And then the other example, though it's not one that I experienced, it's a floor manager who works with me on Newswatch. And, you know, in the days of TV Centre, when all these, you know, Newsnight was... Newsnight and Blue Peter shared the same studio, just so you know. So they took the set down and they redressed it. But, you know, you did have dramas next to news. And he just remembered one day he was on the set of a big news programme and a Victorian seaman walked onto the set and it was someone looking for the Oneidin line. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love the idea of this Victorian sailor in his kind of full kit just walking on where am I? So there you go. That used to happen. But yeah, there's so little out there about the Fun Food Factory. I found basically two things online. One is the TV cream entry, where normally when I look back at old TV cream entries, it's difficult to say which of us actually wrote it. I think given that I don't remember the Fun Food Factory, this isn't one I wrote. I think we could be quite certain of that. That entry also suggests that there was a danger sign on the wall that would start flashing whenever they had to use a knife or something. So that Nanette could address the camera and say, don't do this at home or get an adult to help you yeah and in the book too there's a little warning sign it's, it looks a bit actually looks a bit like Zebedee who appears in the photograph whenever it involves turning on the cooker and the cooker is shown as kind of having you know like the chef's kitchens where the gas flame like really roars up I mean that's how it's portrayed in the book it was unashamedly aimed at quite young children in some ways you know so it's just really sweet because it's the idea of encouraging independence and experimenting with relatively exotic ingredients but you know you're probably not going to be allowed in the kitchen on your own very easily so you you don't want them chopping up that gazpacho with a you know with a large mandolin or whatever so yes I mean maybe in the 70s as well it just they just wore their health and safety ideas more strongly which is weird because in real life it wasn't like that at all well maybe that's one of the reasons why there have been very few children's TV cookery shows over the years and it could be the reason why people always snort at you know the recipes that they did on things like why don't you and I think of Blue Peter at times it was very simplistic and you know ah 
add X to Y where X is normally chocolate and that's that. But maybe it's because they didn't want a mass outbreak of utensil misuse. And yet, you know, they sent John Noakes up to, you know, to do, <laughs> yeah. you know, Nelson's column without any health and safety assessment. And apparently all of the child chef helpers that she had were stage school children. And the only other thing I found on the internet suggests that one of them was Jesse Bertall, who obviously was later evil Marcus Tandy in El Dorado. Okay, that's a niche piece of knowledge that I thought you were going to say was in Harry Potter or something, but as a as a parent, but um, I don't know. There was they there was there were, they were physically of different range. I'm pretty sure there was at least one person of colour, and certainly in the episode that's on YouTube, you know, one of the the kids is actually quite large, you know, physically overweight, and you know, there's no thing made of it at all. So I think it was actually quite inclusive for its time as well. So given that you still make recipes from the Magic Roundabout one, have you ever revisited the cookbook for the Fun Food Factory? Yeah, well. I I made the meatloaf. My son asked for meatloaf because I think he'd heard a lot about it from American culture. He might have had one at a friend's house. And so I said, oh, I've got a recipe. And it was this, you know, what she called beefcake, but essentially meatloaf. And it was good, except that he didn't like the fact that there was, you know, healthy vegetables kind of <laughs> in the middle. There was a layer that you put in of, of cooked spinach or cooked carrot. He said, I really like the meatloaf apart from that. I can't remember many of the other recipes off the top of my head, but you know, I had recipes of things like how to make your own yogurt from scratch which is actually quite easy to do. I mean, you know, it's it's got a whole macrobiotic feel without wearing it very overtly. I mean, it really holds up. I would get, I'll, I'll dig out the book. It's a beautiful book. There were some lovely books. I think it was Hamlin were particularly good publishers of children's cookbooks. And there were a big A3 format. Oh, sorry, there would be A3 if you opened, you know, the front and the back. If you think about a Nigella Lawson cookbook, they're taller than that, but much thinner. So they were, they were almost like picture books. And in fact, my fondest memories of the books I read in the 70s are all cookbooks. You know, there's the Fun Food Factory one, there's the Magic Roundabout cookbook. And there was another cookbook, which I wish I could remember what it was called, because I would find it on Abe Books and buy it. And it was a cookbook inspired, where every recipe was inspired in theory by a fairy tale. So it had the recipe for summer pudding, which I'd never come across before. The idea of eating cold, juice-soaked bread, you know, not realising what an amazing tasting thing it is. But that was linked to the story of, you know, Snow White in the forest gathering berries or something. And there were these beautiful recipes all linked to fairy stories. It would give you the fairy story with it. So there was some really creative publishing going on with a lot of these amazing artists, like the ones you and I have been discussing. You know, it doesn't get the same attention because it wasn't necessarily televised. Well, if there's one thing I've learned from Lots and Familiar, it's somebody always knows what these things are. So if you know what that book is, please let us know. One thing I keep meaning to get around to doing is doing everything from... You ever seen Len Dayton's action cookbook? I've got a copy right on my shelf here with, with a sprig of parsley coming out the gun barrel yes yeah i would love to go through and do that again so maybe we could get something going on twitter with people revisiting these old cookbooks yeah well you know that he and his son at the moment they have a version of the strips going in one of the papers yeah i mean he's he's very very elderly now i think he lives in spain but he's one of the people i've always wanted to interview because that whole combination of the cookery is always there as a theme and so much of his fiction as we know in in you know things like the kind of harry palmer stories but you know he was genuinely interested in good cooking I think had he worked in a restaurant because he knew all this stuff about how to you know joints and explaining them and it was kind of that sort of you know there was that little subculture of quite 
good quality restaurant style cooking, but that you could do at home. I mean, Margaret Costa was that as well a bit. She and her husband ran a restaurant in the 60s and they were sort of amateur cooks, but they they, 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 were, they were good enough to be running a restaurant and the stuff was doable at home. Well, I'm actually quite hungry now, which is coincidence because I think we're both actually off to do some cooking ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and in, my, my, and in fact, I don't know, I don't only cook from celebrity cookbooks, but I'm cooking my double crust apple pie from, you know, Sheila Ferguson was in The Three Degrees. She wrote a cookbook called Soul Food and it was all about the recipes from her family because her family she can trace them back to slave days and it's her aunt or her grandmother's apple pie and I'm making that for our pudding tonight well I hope you enjoy that and I hope I can speak after the potato wedge vindaloo that I'm going to make (laughs) (laughs) always love talking to you Tim thank you it's been brilliant Samira thank you oh thanks so much Why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.